We are in the book of Joshua. This is part 16. Part 16, 1 6. Our 16th, my 16th sermon preaching through the book of Joshua this afternoon. And today we are in chapter 22. Let me set this up a little bit for you guys. I find that when we think about the story of Joshua, most people think about Joshua, they maybe think about maybe one, two, maybe three stories, right? They think maybe about how Joshua and the people crossed over the River Jordan during the rainy season on dry ground. They think of maybe the Rahab and the spies hiding them, and they maybe think about the Battle of Jericho, right? Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Okay, you've sung that song perhaps. But other than that, most people don't really think a lot of thoughts about Joshua. You're like, yeah, I really can't think of any other stories besides that. The interesting thing about Joshua, even though it's pretty gory, beyond the battlefields of Joshua, this story is mainly about the land that God is giving to them. The story is about God's faithfulness, that God is trustworthy, that God keeps his promises to the people. They've been waiting for centuries that God would give them an inheritance, that God would give them land, that God would give them rest, and he has. And in a sense, it's a foreshadowing of the rest that Jesus offers to all of us, right? Come to me, you who are heavy laden. I will give you rest, rest for your souls. The world is saying, find your rest, find your peace, find your happiness, and everything other than Christ. And Jesus comes and says, no, I'm right here. I'm right here. If you will but come to me, if you will but come. And in this own way, the people in Joshua's day are looking forward to the land and the rest that they have been promised. They've spent 400 years under Egyptian slavery, under the yoke of Pharaoh. They have spent the last five years battling in the land of Canaan. And as we saw last week, God keeps His promises. God is a faithful God. God could be trusted. And God gave the people land from chapters 13 to 19. And as we said, on the surface, it seemed kind of boring. Like, this tribe gets this land from that street up to that mountaintop to that river. You know, and it reads kind of boring. But when you imagine yourself in, in the position of the people, you find out that you just inherited this massive fortune. The lawyers are going over all the details. It's not boring. You're like, I- I'm sorry, what, you, I'm, I'm getting a jet ski in a lake house? No, you're not boring me. Keep going. Continue, please, right? Like, oh, and there's what type of sports car? And there's a house in Malibu. And, like, the people are receiving their inheritance. As we said last week, as boring on the surface level as chapters 13 and 19 are, it wouldn't have been for these people. They have waited so long. And God is now giving them the land. God is now giving them rest. It is a joyous occasion. And that is where we pick up today's story. In chapter 22, verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. These are the Transjordan tribes. Do we have that map from last week by any chance? We do. One more second, we do. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. These are the Transjordan tribes. This is significant. The Jordan River, as you can see, is right here. And the Transjordan tribes live on this side, okay? On the east side. And that is significant. Back in Deuteronomy, when Moses was still alive, they had specifically requested that land. It was good for their livestock, and they were responsible for 
killing the people that owned it. So they asked Moses. Moses reluctantly gave them the land, but he was concerned. He was concerned that because they already had the land, they would maybe lack the motivation when the time came to actually cross the River Jordan and fight alongside their brothers. And so he gives it to them on one condition that when the time comes, they fight alongside their brothers. And they have for five years. They have. And so these are the Transjordan tribes that Joshua is speaking to here out of the gate. Back to verse 2. And Joshua said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers, the other nine and a half tribes, these many days down to this day but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. You can go home now. That's what he tells them. Not you guys. (laughs) Like, we've got three more songs to play, right? <laughs> you can go home now. Some of these people, they probably haven't seen their families in over five years, and by all likelihood. They've, they've, been, they've been, when we crunch the numbers, they've been fighting the land for five years. That's a long time. That's a long time. I think the longest I was away from Diana was, I don't know, 98 days with the Army at one point. I can imagine five years. They've been away from their families, been away from their children. This is good news, right? And they're commended, too. They're commended because he says, you guys have, you guys have held up your end of the bargain. You, 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 you are what right looks like. You've obeyed. You've, you've done what God has wanted. Go home. Go back to your families. Go back to the land that God has given to you now that the other nine and a half tribes have received their inheritance. And then he says in verse 5, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him, cling to him and to serve him. How? With all your heart and with all your soul. If you remember chapter 1, you remember the phrase, be strong, courageous. Most of you are like, oh yeah, I've heard that somewhere, bumper sticker, Lifeway bookstore, in a movie. <laughs> strong, courageous, right? And most people, when they think of being strong, courageous, they're like, all right, contextually, like, what does that even mean? I find that most people don't know what it means, or they apply it in ways that actually has nothing to do with the, the, the setting, the context of the story. Back in Joshua chapter 1, this is Joshua's like, first directive, right? He takes over as the commander, okay? He is the man in charge. Moses is dead, and he is the guy... And the directive given to him is be strong and courageous and careful to obey all that Moses has instructed you, not deviating to the left or to the right. Why might he be strong and courageous? Because no doubt there will be a temptation to not obey what God has told him to do. You need to be strong and courageous? Yes! Why? Because the world is pulling at us, right? The world is pulling us in different directions with different temptations. 
And we try to, sometimes it feels like this, we're trying to walk on the path of light and we're, we're stumbling this way and we're trying to walk toward God and we're stumbling this way. That's why, that's why he told Joshua in the very beginning, be strong and courageous. Okay? And of course, this is a very similar sentiment that he is now telling the Transjordan tribes as they go home. And notice the end of verse 5, right? Cling to him, obey, and serve him. How? With all your heart, all your soul. Well, you know, I did my Bible, I circled heart and soul, because that's pretty important. I think you'll see that here in a minute. It's important. How are they to do this? Love God, obey God, serve God. How? All your heart, all your soul. In other words, this was not simply supposed to be external conformity. Like, I'm just going to go check a box. And I find that oftentimes, that's how we treat our walk with the Lord. So long as we obey Him, so long as we've, you know, made it to the end zone, you might say, we're good to go. But I would argue, it matters how you make it to the end zone. If you make it to the end zone in the wrong way, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. You run out of bounds, you punch the other coach in the face, then you run back inbounds, you make it to the end zone. Does it matter? Yeah, it matters. It matters a lot. So how are they to obey him? They're to cling to him. They're to serve him. How? With all their heart and with all their soul. This is important because there are certain ways in which we may externally check the box and serve him in air quotes in which God is not pleased. For example, Psalms 100 verse 2. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. You know that? I like that. I've seen a lot. This really has changed how I think about this. Serve the Lord with gladness. In other ways, in other words, there are ways in which we can serve God in which He is absolutely not interested at all in your service. Because it matters whether your heart's involved. And this isn't anything new, right? 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance. God, He looks at the heart. God cares about the heart. Not just that you're doing the right thing, but how you're going about doing it. That matters too. And that's what he wants to get across to these Transjordan tribes. It matters. You think it doesn't matter? I've told this story before. I think it really illustrates the point. John Piper's son comes in. Barnabas. Dad, can I use the car? Sure, son, you can use the car. What are you doing? Oh, I'm going to go see a movie, see a game with my friends. Okay, okay, but son, you know, you've you got to wash the car. Dad, come on, I want to wash the car. Son, you know the rule, at least once a month, the car has got to be washed. Okay, this isn't anything new. You know this. You haven't washed. It's been well over a month. I don't care if you take the car tonight, but you've got to wash it. Barnabas walks out, slams the door, grabs the hose, spraying down the car, cussing, yelling. He's mad. So the question is, does he obey? dad and say yeah I mean he technically got the car washed but you know as well as I do that wasn't the point right his heart is ugly his heart was gross right see it matters not just that we check that box right not that, okay well I'm obeying God but, but it matters what is our heart doing along the way that matters a lot 
with all your heart, with all your soul. Or as the psalmist says, serve the Lord with gladness. Offering plate comes around. Man. Some, this has been my attitude before. Oh, I have to, like, it's just that I had just this attitude, right? And I'm, I'm reaching my wallet. I'm throwing some cash in or I'm texting a, I'm texting a number, right, to give. And I, it's almost like begrudgingly. You think that impresses God? That does not impress God, right? That does not impress God, right, at all. How we obey Him matters. How we obey Him matters. Now, some people at this point say, well, if I understand what you're saying, then if I pick up my Bible and my heart's not in it, I'm off the hook. Or if it's Sunday and I'm just not really feeling like coming to the service, I'm off the hook. Or when the plate comes around, I'm off the hook. Or whatever other Christian thing that you might do, I'm off the hook. If I understand what you're saying. And the fact is, is no, you don't understand what I'm saying. So then the question comes is, what do I do in that moment? Okay? I, I, I know it is important to obey God. I know it's important how I obey God. I know that my heart, my soul needs to be in it, and it's not. So what do I do in that moment? Piper tells a story. He's on his way to go visit one of the people at his church. They're in the hospital. He pulls into the parking spot, puts the car in park, and he said, I absolutely did not want to be there. I didn't want to be there. It's kind of an inconvenience. I wanted to be somewhere else. So what does he do? Does he put the car in reverse and just leave? Heart's not in it. He starts to pray. And he says, God, forgive me for the ugliness of my heart, right? right? That's where the problem lies with me, God. And I need you, right, to, cre- cre- to create in me a clean heart right now. I have not a lot of affections for you right now. And I, I just I need to repent before you, God, because I'm going to go in there and I need you to help me with my attitude. You know, some people come and they open their Bibles. Some of you will open your Bibles tomorrow and you're just like, yep, Mm-hmm. Yeah, just words on a page. What do you do? Well, I'm not really feeling it, right? Is that what you do? No, that's not what you do. My heart's not it. What do you do? You do what the psalmist does. He says, God, unite my heart to fear your name because right now my heart is fragmented. I, it's thinking about this class or that girl or that guy or that Facebook status or a million other things, God, and I need you to unite my heart to fear your name. And God, I don't care if I've got to sit at this table for the next 30 minutes as I wait for you to respond, as I wait for you to answer my prayer. I'll sit. i got 30 minutes. I'm not going anywhere. So some of us, we just give up way too early, right? We give up, and oh, by the way, also we need to repent along the way, ask for forgiveness, no, it matters how we serve Him. How we obey Him. It matters. Serve the Lord with gladness. And pray for Him to give you a glad heart. Pray for forgiveness in those moments when you don't have one. And so that is the instructions that He gives to the Transjordan tribe as they make their way home for the first time in five years. Now verse 7. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh. To the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. To the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, 
go back to your tents with much wealth, with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers, so the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. A quick reference, especially if you're new. I know the reference to the half-tribe of Manasseh is really confusing. It is. Um, Abraham, Father Abraham, you know, he had many sons. And yes, we are one of them. But of course, his, his son is Isaac, right? And Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become, right, the tribes of Israel. It is from those 12 sons that we have the 12 tribes. Of course, there is no tribe of Joseph. Joseph, who had the coat of many colors, and Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into Egyptian slavery. There is no tribe of Joseph because, as many of you know, Joseph received a double blessing, a double honor, and so instead we have the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay? So that's, that's, that's how it works out. But Manasseh, this reference to the half-tribe, is interesting. And while the scripture isn't 100% clear, as best as we can tell, there is a half-tribe because of clan divisions. Unity is going to be a major issue today in today's text, and it certainly has been an issue throughout the history of Israel. But just because you were from the tribe of Manasseh did not mean that you guys were all brothers and bros. It, that, that's not always how it worked out, because what would happen is to be like, all right, yes, Manasseh is our father, but I'm one of Manasseh's three sons. And so then it becomes, all right, well then, where is our clan loyalty to? Right? Is it to this son number one, son number two, son number three? And so as best as we can tell, that it has something to do with that for why we have the east and west Manasseh, one on each side of the Jordan River. Of course, that one half-tribe is part of the Transjordan tribes. But the point of this little passage right here is they've got all this wealth, They've got all this wealth that they're taking with them, and he says, split it up, divide it. And so you see them, right? This, this people becoming one, not individual tribes, but becoming one people, sharing the wealth along the way, dividing it up. And it, that's the picture I think it serves to show us. And everything is just great at this point. But hang on, it's about to not be so great in a few moments. I find that's true with many of the stories in the Bible. Just a second, it's just, as soon as it's good for a second, it's about to take a roller coaster turn because of this thing called sin. I love to tell people our enemy is not ISIS or global terrorism. Our enemy is the people of God, is the devil, is sin, is temptation. And, and of course, that's going to pop up here. And so as we see in verse 10, it says this, and when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that's the Transjordan tribes living on the east side of the Jordan, they built there an altar by the Jordan. An altar of imposing size. It's monstrous. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. On the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Back one verse, please. 22.11. Now hold on a second. What do you mean, the side that belongs to the people of Israel? See a problem right here? Already, issues of unity are, 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 are becoming a reality. The Transjordan tribes are Israel. 
You see that? The, the author seems to be very intentional in showing us this, that even right now, like, they fought together for five years, and they haven't even made it way, their way home. It's like, whoa, hold on a second. You see what they did? They built an altar on Israel's side. But they are Israel. Then verse 12. And when the people of Israel heard of it, what do you mean the people of Israel? The Transjordan tribes are Israel. The whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. They gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Why? Because they built this altar of imposing size. At first glance, we say, what's the big deal? What's the problem with this? It seems, I don't know, why are they freaking out? Well, one thing you wouldn't know unless you did a little bit of a history lesson is Leviticus 17, 8-9, Deuteronomy 13, 12-15 gives very clear instructions that the people were not to make any sacrifices or bring any offerings anywhere other than the tabernacle. And if they did, everyone was authorized to kill the individual who violated that. So you see the problem. You say, that's a peculiar law. I know. What's the intent? Well, the intent is to protect the people from worshiping other gods. Okay? That might sound like, oh, that's not something I struggle with. Yeah, I gotcha, right? In, in the sense for them. But this is something they struggled with a lot. A lot, as we'll even see momentarily. So that's why they've gathered to go to war with their own people. So this is what we find out. Verse 13 then the people of Israel sent the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the two and a half tribes, the Transjordan tribes living on the eastern side of the Jordan, in the land of Gilead. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. He's not only the son of Eleazar, he is the grandson of Aaron, the brother of Moses. So some deep and rich heritage right there. And verse 14, and with him ten chiefs, so Eleazar the priest, excuse me, Phinehas the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel, and they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord? by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves more than that in a moment, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then... Tomorrow, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. He'll be angry with us, too. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. And verse 20, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity, for his sin. I think they do the right thing. They see this imposing altar go up. 
Now, it doesn't say whether they've actually made any sacrifices, but they see it go up. And what do they do? Phineas, the other ten clan leaders come. What are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? You guys know you're not supposed to be making sacrifices. Do you not just remember what happened to Baal of Peor? Do you not remember what happened with Achan? Listen. Listen, guys. If you guys are currently in rebellion against God, it would be better It would be better if you left the land of your possession and came and lived with us, right? Like, I, I, you, you want us to leave our homes that we just got back to? Yeah, it would be better if you left them, if you're in rebellion against God, and came and lived with us. Like, some of you, like, it would be better if you just got rid of your laptop, okay? If it's, if it's causing you to be in rebellion against God, to just get rid of it. Or give it to a friend, or to end that relationship. Like it'd be better to just I know, I know it's precious to you, that inheritance, but it'd be better for you to come live with us, right? Like you need some accountability, Transjordan tribes. If you are in rebellion against God. And then of course, their concern, in their concern, they cite the story of Baal of Peor. It is a obscure story that can be found in Numbers twenty five. I will quickly paraphrase it for you. This is a quick flashback. Moses is alive at this time. And the people get involved with some of the Moabite gals. Okay? And the Moabite gals cause them to fall into sin. Cause them to bow down and worship Moabite gods and they also get involved with them sexually. You think you need to be strong and courageous in those moments. And I'm guessing if these gals were really ugly, there would be no temptation here, okay? Like, I'm sure they were very attractive, and they're causing the people not only to fall into sexual immorality, but they're causing them to, to worship other gods. And as a result, God sends a plague on the land, and it kills 24,000 people, and it's ravaging the people. And the people are grieved and broken over their sin, and they're crying out to God to hold back His wrath. They're crying out to God to stop the plague. And it continues to kill more and more of the people. And they're, they're crying out in front of the tabernacle, and there's this moron named Zimri. This guy, Zimri. I was speaking in some of Dr. Wheeler's classes this week. Maybe some of you guys saw me there. And I'm speaking about the issue of lust-free living. Very serious issue. And there's this all-star in the back, laughing, making jokes. Nothing, nothing funny about what I'm saying. Just, just joking. I almost wanted to just stop the class and say, hey, dude, stop laughing. But I didn't. Maybe I should have. When I, when I read the story about Zimri in Numbers 25, that's exactly what I was like. Oh, yeah, that guy's like Zimri, right? So you understand what's going on. God sends the plague. It's ravaging people. It's killing people. They're repenting. They're crying out God to release His wrath. The plague might stop. And in the midst of it, this moron Zimri walks by with this gal on his arm, walks right by everyone crying out to God, walks right by the tabernacle, and then goes in a little cheap motel you know how that story ends. And when Phineas the priest sees what happens, he's so furious. He's so furious that he would just so be so arrogant. Everyone's out crying and pleading for God to end this plague. And so Phineas grabs a spear, follows him in, and while they're in the middle of you-know-what, throws the spear right through both of them and kills them both on the spot. 
So I never heard that story. There's some good stories in the Bible. <laughs> Notice what the text says. I'm reading this from Numbers chapter 25 right now. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, he has turned back my wrath. He has turned back the wrath of God from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. There are some types of jealousy that are quite appropriate. The other story they reference is the story of Achan. Some of you may remember that story. Battle of Jericho. Joshua. He gives a command. The command, we're going to go in there, we're going to light him up. We're not taking any possession. Okay, You find a 20 line on the ground, you leave it there. We're not taking anything for ourselves. You got it? Pretty clear instructions. Pretty clear instructions. Achan, of course. There's always one guy, right? One person's going to screw it up for everyone else. So Achan goes, and he, you know, he thinks, oh, no one's going to notice this, right? Takes some stuff, buries it in his tent. And then, later on in the story, they go to battle at the city of Ai, a city which they should have defeated fairly easily, and they get beaten, right? They get smoked like a cheap cigar. They do. And they lose the battle. And the worst part of it is that 36 Israelites die. 36 men never come back to their families. Because of what one man did. One man. See, if you can feel the seriousness of the issue right now. Okay, you can feel almost the emotions of Phineas and the ten leaders coming. Why? Because sin is serious. And they're concerned. What is going on, guys? Okay? Right? I haven't seen you at small group for a while. I'm concerned, right? I haven't seen you gathering with the people of God on Sunday. I'm concerned. You haven't responded to my text. I'm concerned. Like, what's going on? Like, I'm concerned. Right? You built this altar. You know what God says about making sacrifice at any place other than the tabernacle. We're concerned. What is going on? What is going on? And of course, this has significant implications. It raises the question, are we our brother's keeper? That's the question I think it it, it poses in front of us. Are we our brother's keeper? 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Throw it up there. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, I throw this up on there because you might say, well, you know, that sin is just between them and God. Okay? I'm done my business. I'm staying out of it. And I'm going to submit to you that that's not always the right decision. That's not always the most loving thing, as we see here, right? And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Your roommate, your friend, hasn't been to work all week. He's up, she's up, till 4 a.m. watching Netflix or playing video games. What does Paul say to the Thessalonians? He says, admonish them. Okay, That lazy, slothful person who is idle, admonish them. Encourage the faint-hearted person. Help the weak person. Oh, by the way, be patient. Why? Because you're going to need to be patient because you're probably going to slap them upside the head. Yeah. See, all the people that laugh are like, yep, you're, you're like even thinking about somebody right now, I'm sure. Be patient. Be patient. 
are we our brother's keeper? My answer is yes. Should we intervene in other people's conflicts? You know, oftentimes we think Matthew 18, your brother sins against you, go and talk to them. But is there ever a point that we need to, we need to come in, right? We need to interrupt things like Phineas and these people. And I think there certainly are times and there are certainly questions that we need to lean on, like asking ourselves, well, how serious is this, okay? Okay, is this like, all right, he ate my, bo- he ate my you know, my, my last wheat thins or cheese. It's like, how serious, you know, how serious is the issue? How long has this been going on for? How, how mature are the people that are having these conflicts? How close are you with them? Who else is involved? I think it requires great wisdom when we do intervene. But there certainly are times in which we should, like Galatians 6, 1, for example. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Your brother's caught in sin? Go to him. Go to her. Or for that matter, James 5.19. Should we intervene at times? I think James 5.19 makes the case right here. James 5.19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, the verse goes on to say in verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Your job is not simply to make sure that you are saved from death. Your job, gentlemen, your job, ladies, is to help save others. To help others. It's not simply that we obey God, that we serve God, that we follow God, but to help others. So that's kind of like discipleship, right? In Christ, we are a brother's keeper. In Christ, we are a sister's keeper. And there's a lot at stake. Especially when you look at other practical applications, like dealing with issues of unforgiveness. Like You look at a text like Matthew 6.14 to 15. It says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Not to step in and intervene in these sorts of situations, I think, would be unloving. Piper tells a story using a small group. Maybe it was like a prayer pod or something. I don't know. person's talking. And they say, I'll never forgive my mother for what she did to me. And he said, never? You, you know, you've got to forgive her. You have to forgive her. It's hard sometimes, though. It is hard. <clears throat> Especially when people really hurt you. So what do you do? Oh, well, it's not my business. That's between them and their mom. Did you not just read Matthew 6, 14 to 15? If my house was on fire? Oh, Joe's got it. What do you mean Joe's got it? I hope you would, like, do everything you could. Call me, text me, kick the door down if my house was on fire to come get me. Okay, you you see the urgency here. See, the issue of 
In certainly some situations, we definitely need to intervene. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. Yes, yes, we need to forgive that person. That's the gospel, right? You know the story, the parable that Jesus tells about the the man who owes the king like six billion dollars. He can't repay it, throws him in prison with his family until you can repay it, not letting you out. And the man's like, I can never repay this. Of course, that's the point, right? We can never pay back Jesus for what he did when he died on the cross for us. That's the point of that story, right? I can't pay him back. It's okay. I know. The six billion you owe me, I'm wiping it clean. But then what does that man do, of course? The guy that owes him 20 grand, he does the exact same thing. See, we are to forgive because the one, the one who forgave us set that model for us. So yeah, guys, we are a brother's keeper in Christ. Certainly cert- certain situations we should get involved with. Yes, I think we should refer Matthew 18, but I think there are certainly points in which we need to step in, we need to get involved, we need to help, and that takes wisdom, takes asking questions to understand the situations. Oftentimes, sometimes people just come in guns blazing. I I like to think that asking questions sometimes helps to elicit the information. I need the more information I know, the better I can understand, the better I can help people. A wise man, Solomon, once said, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines it. We've heard from Phineas. We've heard from the clan leaders. But what about the Transjordan tribes? What is their response? Well, this is their response. Verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. He knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion and breach of faith against the Lord, don't spare us today. You kill us all right now. You kill us all. If we're in rebellion against God, if we've done something wrong, kill us right now. Verse 23. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. They know the law. They know the rules. That was never their motivation. They never planned on making any sort of offerings there. No, but we did it from fear. There's the motivation, right? We were afraid. Are they afraid? That in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? You're not part of the people of God paraphrase for verse 25 the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you the people of Reuben and the people of Gad you've got no portion in the Lord there's a river separating you from true Israel from the true people of God you've got no stake in this so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord therefore we said Verse 26, therefore we said, let us now build an offer, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the land. And we thought, oh yes we did, if this should be said to us and to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Just look over there at the altar that we made, the replica. Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between you and us, 
that we are a part of the same covenant, that we are a family. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. Sometimes when people come and confront us, we get a little defensive. Okay, it's happened to me. But notice their response. Openness. Complete transparency. If we've done anything wrong, kill us right now. Just kill us. Sometimes when people come, and even if they bring charges that maybe are unfounded, we're a little defensive. We're upset. Well, here's the thing. Good guys have nothing to hide, right? Transparency. Boom. Whatever you want to know, I'll tell you. Whatever you want to know, you come, you ask right now. That's hard sometimes to do. But the people, they build this replica altar, and it's interesting because they actually build it on the west side of the Jordan, not the east side. Like, if they were actually going to make like sacrifices, they probably would have built it on the east side, not the west side, because they're all on the east side. But that wasn't the whole point. They're never going to make sacrifices. Their point was that they're going to build this massive replica altar that would be a reminder. Because, of course, their fear is they're afraid of being excluded. I hate it when people are excluded. Tugs at my heartstrings. I don't like it. Because the gospel is not... The gospel is, is open for anyone, right? Right? And that's, that's what they're worried, right? They're worried that one day they're going to be like, you live on the other side of the Jordan. You don't belong to God. You're not part of the covenant people of God. And their kids will be, okay, well, I guess we don't. And they just walk away from the Lord. That's, that's their concern. That's their, that's their fear. And, of course, that's the motivation in this story right now. And they say they built it to be a witness. And, of course, a witness, okay, a witness is someone who tells the truth in a matter, right? It's in a legal sense. It's in a legal sense. It's someone who tells the truth of a matter. But it could also refer to inanimate objects, such as as we see here, or in Deuteronomy thirteen nineteen, where God says that the heavens and the earth are His witnesses to His people for whether or not they would obey. And so we come to the end of this story, and of course, you keep reading, and it seems that the Phineas the priests, the other tribes, they're they're really. They're so happy. Everything's cool now between them. They, they, obviously, they obviously clarify things. And you say, well, well, did they overreact? And I don't think they did. I don't think they overreacted. I think they reacted in an appropriate way, especially when you understand what had just happened at Baal of Peor with what happened with Achan and his sin, I think they acted in the appropriate way because these people, they have seen firsthand the consequences of sin. They've seen how sin affects more than just one person. It's like a virus. I think they do exactly what they should do. They come, they confront them. You say, maybe they're jumping a gun a little. Oh, maybe, but I don't think so. And then the Transjordan tribes give their response and they say, guys, we built this just to be a witness, to be a reminder that we are part of the covenant people of God. There are certainly challenges that we face today, right? When it comes to the covenant people of God, I don't like it. You find them at different places. I, I have like zero tolerance for them, especially when I see like different cliques or groups form that exclude, specifically that exclude other people. It drives me nuts. 
Drives me nuts. Why? Why? Because just as that altar was a witness, today we, we are the witnesses, right? That's, that's Jesus' words in John 13, 35. He says, by your love for one another, all men will know that you're my disciples. So the people come in and they're like, wow, the people in Spring City Church, they really love each other. I mean, look, even that socially awkward guy, they don't exclude him. He's a part of them, right? Like, wow, it's their love for one another. And in a day and age in which there's a lot of divisiveness going on in the world, I think we have our solution found in the witness, in the witness that we are to be for the one who's done so much for us. Talk about black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. The racial challenges that we have today or excluding people because you just, you don't like them. It's just meanness. What's the solution? The gospel? What's the solution? Jesus? What's the answer? It's God, right? Because Jesus came to die for every tribe, for every people, for every ethno-linguistic, socio-economic person, right? That's the solution. Give them Jesus. Give them blood-bought gospel. That's what the world needs. And they're looking for hope. They're looking for the answers. And they can look as long as they want, but unless we step out and be the John 13, 35 witnesses, like, they're going to look in vain. Oh, that we might be those witnesses. Oh, that we might serve the Lord with gladness. Oh, that we remember, yes, in Christ, we are our brothers and sisters keeper. And the people of God the people of God are welcome to come into the presence of God. Anyone who would bow to King Jesus, anyone who would place their faith in King Jesus, anyone who would trust King Jesus as both Lord and Savior, it is an open invitation to come. Issue of unity, issue resolved. And so as the band comes, I want to pray for us today. Jesus, thank you for this beautiful story. God, I pray that you would help us to cling to you, to serve you with all of our heart, with all of our soul. Not simply come to you and honor you with our mouth, even though our heart is far from you, that we wouldn't be whitewashed tombs where on the outside, yeah, we're checking the boxes, but on the inside, we're ugly and disgusting. God, help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, God. Help us to be a united people. God, give us patience in a First Thessalonians sort of way. Because sometimes it's a struggle, it's a challenge when we're correcting others. God, I pray that we would be like a Phineas and hate sin. Such a drastic story at Peor. But I pray that we would hate sin because sin affects everyone around us. God, I pray that we would be a united people and that we would be witnesses by our love for one another that all men would know that we are your disciples. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.